everyone, and welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. My name is Paula Downs, I am Andrew's younger daughter, and on today's show I am delighted to introduce you to composer, pianist, conductor, teacher and great family friend Tony Bridgewater. Tony met my dad for advice on his compositions and studying at Cambridge in the late 70s. Since then, he met my sister Anna, where she was playing violin at a concert and went on to employ her as Head of Instrumental Studies at Old Swinford Hospital School for several years, where he was Director of Music. They have performed in many recitals together as the Himley duo and have invited me to sing with them, forming the Himley trio. I have also done solo recitals with Tony, premiering two of his song cycles. On one occasion, my mum, Cynthia Downs, joined us playing the viola to premiere Andrew Downs' The Door of Winter with poetry by Bernard Davis for the Wensbury Music Club in 2017. Here is song number two, Let Go, from that cycle. This is a recent multi-track recording I have made with me singing, playing violin and viola, accompanied by my husband, David Trippett, on the piano. Here is the poem. Each day the canopy of leaves is thinner, autumn's fire-clay palette replaced by sterner tones. Trees turn to carved slate silhouettes, cloud tracers strafe gunmetal skies, scenes touched by brushstrokes turn brittle, now etched in light cut in deepening gloom. Each day is simpler, harsher, the contrasts sharper, Till horizontal sparks strike off the sun anvil into midwinter's coal. The earth is letting go, the fields exhale. If hedgerows are now wreaths, there are no mourners and no funeral. The life force is content to rest, touch stone and feel. The heart still beats but slow. Touch stone, let go. This year is done. Next year will have splendour of its own. Soon sun anvil sparks will kindle spring's awakening glow. Thank you. 
You can purchase the sheet music for all of the pieces by Andrew Downs at his website andrewdowns.com. You can also read about the premiere performances and subsequent performances of these works on the blog of Cynthia Downs, his wife and publisher. So now to our guest, Tony Bridgewater. Tony Bridgewater was a student at the Birmingham School of Music, now the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, and St John's College, Cambridge, studying composition with Peter Tranchell and piano with Malcolm Wilson and René Resnick. He has also participated in piano workshops with Margaret Fingerhut, David Owen Norris and James Lisney and conducting workshops with Rodney Winther, formerly of Cincinnati University. He gives regular recitals as an accompanist and soloist and appears frequently in concert series in Cambridge, Rugby, Solihull, Shrewsbury, Bewdley, Birmingham and Stourbridge. In September 2016, he was appointed Principal Accompanist for the Kidderminster Male Choir. He has composed for orchestra, concert band and choir and sonatas for piano, violin, trumpet and cello. He gave the first performance of his second piano concerto in February 2010 and conducted the premiere of his double concerto for flute and clarinet in February 2013. In November 2015, the pianist Margaret Fingerhut gave the first performance of his concert piece for piano and orchestra, and in July 2016, Anna Downs gave the first performances of his second violin sonata. In March 2017, he conducted the premiere of his 15-minute tone poem for orchestra, The Legend of the Tamar. Other recent premieres include his Suite for Oboe and Piano, Memories of Scotland for Violin and Piano, Quintet for Winds and the song cycles The Other Side of a Mirror and Snowflakes. His music for brass and wind instruments is published by Fortin Music, including his Sonata for Flutes, first performed in 2015 by the National Flute Orchestra, his double concerto for flute and clarinet, trumpet sonata, suite for oboe, quintet for winds and overture for a festival and Huddersfield overture for concert band. In 2014, he was elected a trustee of the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire Association, which fosters links with the alumni of the Conservatoire and the wider musical community, and raises money to support students studying at the Conservatoire. In September 2020, he became the chair of the RBCA. In 2013, he conducted the National Flute Orchestra at short notice in a programme of works including the Andrew Downs Sonata for Flutes and he was invited to be the permanent director of the ensemble from 2014. In this post, he has commissioned and performed new music by composers from around the world. He has also conducted student groups on many tours to Europe and America, and performed in prestigious venues such as Barcelona Cathedral, Montserrat Abbey, Salzburg Cathedral and St Mark's Cathedral, Venice. In 2021, he will also take up a new post conducting the Wire Forest Symphony Orchestra when rehearsals are able to resume. You can find out more at tonybridgewatermusic.co.uk And now, without further ado, here is Tony Bridgewater telling us about his background and how he got into music in the first place. My family aren't particularly musical. It's not like the Downses or the J.S. Barks. They go back for sort of generation after generation. But the first musician I'm aware of in my direct family was my grandmother, old Nan, 
and she was a talented pianist and went to whatever the precursor of the Birmingham School of Music was. I think it was called the Birmingham Midland Institute, something like that, and studied piano there. And had she not been seriously ill as a young woman, I might well have been able to hear her play the piano. Sadly, I never had that opportunity. She had a serious illness, and after that, she never went back to the piano. But I've got her old upright piano. It's an English drape, very large, what you would describe as an upright grand. And uh, when she was a young girl, she lived on a farm that belonged to the family, and they used to save up the money from selling sacks of manure in order to buy this piano. So they saved it all up, went to Cradley Heath, to the Cremona piano warehouse, picked out this piano, and uh, I've still got it to this day. So my first reason for me being interested in music was that this piano was there, and I took an interest in it. And so that's how I first became attached to it. I think the other people who inspired me, I mean, of course, my parents were very supportive and as parents do spent a lot of money on lessons and so on and ultimately bought me my lovely Bechstein grand piano that I've got now. But in terms of people at school, the other person I would particularly say inspired me first of all was my music teacher, John Griswold, who was the head of music at King Edwards College in Starbridge or King Edwards Grammar School, as it was when I was was there and he was an amazing guy he was a fabulous pianist he was a very fine conductor and he was an excellent composer and I'm sorry his music doesn't get performed more frequently than it does I've got some recordings of some of the pieces that we performed with him at school and I think what I learned from him was when I was doing teacher training myself and I was training other teachers I used to describe it as the Kappelmeister model and it's not a popular model. A lot of people said, oh, you know, it's not about your musicianship or your music making. I took a slightly different view that because he was a fantastic musician and set me an example, that made me want to be like him. And that inspired me to emulate what he did. So he picked up on, I remember in one music lesson, he picked up on the fact that I got the perfect pitch, which I didn't even know what it was. Uh, it came up in a singing class that we did. And he gave me a huge amount of support throughout my time at King Edwards, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. Yeah, that's how I initially got into music. Did you learn other instruments? I did learn other instruments as well, but nothing that you would want to hear me play now, let's put it that way. I'm very glad I played the violin because before I started doing lots of chamber music, it was an opportunity to make music with other people. King Edward's Grammar School, John Griswold was one of the founding fathers of the National Festival of Music for Youth. So we were an orchestra playing music to a very high standard. We did the first boot of the Pastoral Symphony one night in the Royal Albert Hall. And mm. the other night was quite amazing. Rick Wakeman, the pianist and pop musician from a group called Yes. He was very popular at the time, I think it was 1979. And he'd written a piece called The Six Wives of Henry VIII featuring him as a piano soloist. And so they got an arranger to arrange one of these pieces for symphony orchestra and piano. And we got to play with him. Wow. Turned Amazing. up to the rehearsal in a very nice uh, Jensen Interceptor. I seem to remember he had a very attractive girlfriend with him with a nice fur coat. But it was a really cold day. So when they arrived, she took her shoes off and put her feet on the radiator. <laughs> 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 it's funny the things you remember. 
as far as the piano is concerned, I mean, yeah, the piano is there, and I listened to a lot of music. I collected LPs and cassettes, and I particularly loved Rachmaninoff's music. I couldn't play very much of it, because of course it's hugely difficult, but that kind of inspired me, and Tchaikovsky, people like that. I think also being surrounded by lots of other good students. Mark Bevington would be the most famous person out of them now, I would think. But there were a lot of very fine musicians there, and I think maybe we all slightly competed with each other, I don't know. Who taught you piano? My first piano teacher was a lovely lady called Mrs. Connop very much in the mould of the senior citizen giving piano lessons in her breakfast room on a Saturday morning. But she was a lovely lady, really encouraging, and got me through to about grade five, at which point I think I just felt I was ready for a change. And we had a piano tuner who was, I can't remember his name now, but he was quite a local character. He'd come and tune the piano, but he was always smoking. It was in the days when you smoked in other people's houses. And uh, he would come and he'd be smoking, and the cigarette would just stay on his lip whilst he was tuning, and the ash would get longer and longer and longer. You were just waiting for it to tip into the mechanism of the piano. Anyway, that's an aside. So the piano tuner said, I know this brilliant young student. He's just graduated from the Birmingham School of Music, and his teacher there now and his name's Malcolm Wilson who of course is a good friend of Andrew's yeah so we contacted him and we set up an audition and I don't know whether I was very very nervous or what happened but I had a blinding migraine headache and we had to call it off and then I turned up the next the rearranged audition and I played I think it was a really really easy list consolation something like that I just played it utterly safe and in spite of it being such a simple piece for whatever reason he felt he could take me on and then to my first lesson I took along the Rachmaninoff C-sharp minor prelude because that's what I'd actually been preparing I said I've got a concert in a few weeks time can you help me get this ready and he said I wish you played this at the audition because I nearly didn't take you on Really? So I was quite lucky I even got in with Malcolm. Anyway, I think he and John Griswold were probably the very best teachers I had because both of them, instead of trying to tell you what to do, they would take what you could do and work with it. And they give you other ways of looking at things within what you were already doing. So in other words, they took you from your starting point and broadened you out and added more in. Because I think we've all encountered other kinds of teachers who everything you've done so far is completely wrong and you've got to start again from scratch doing it their way. And that might work for some people, but certainly didn't work for me. That's me starting the piano and playing instrument. Maybe the most challenging thing I asked Tony to play for me was my piano reduction of Andrew Downs' Celtic Rhapsody for soprano and symphony orchestra. Can you tell me what your experience of playing Celtic Rhapsody was? Was that, it challenging? Well, it was very challenging because any transcription of an orchestral score is going to naturally present a lot of problems. First of all, you've just got the obvious mechanical thing of you've got ten fingers and they're all attached. Uh, <laughs> And whereas an orchestral score is like five times wider. And so that is the first issue. And then the second issue is trying to not just conceive of it as a big piano piece, but to try and actually recreate something that obviously doesn't sound like the orchestra, but achieves 
an effect that will support the voice in this particular case in the same way as the orchestra would have done. I was very lucky that I had a good starting point because you, being a pianist yourself, had obviously thought through the technical issues before you started, so the reduction that you gave me was eminently playable. I would blame my own lack of technique rather than any fault on your part. There were one or two places where I couldn't quite bring out every voice in the way that you wanted me to, so with your agreement, if you remember, I just made a few little edits to that. But no, I started off with an excellent score from you. And then, if you recall, I asked you to give me a link to some recordings of them so that I could actually hear what the original sound like So, in other words, in my head, I wasn't compromised in a way that I would have been if I'd only ever seen and heard the piano score. Does that make sense? Although you can't sound like an orchestra, by listening to the orchestra, you get more of a sense of what you're trying to do with the piano reduction of it. Yeah. But what I loved about those pieces, well, what have you got there? The harmony is clearly contemporary, but it's not something that's going to discourage people from wanting to listen in the first place. So a modal approach to harmony. So melodic and of course influenced I think by folk music was the way it felt to me certainly. And a wonderful sense of direction in the interpretation of the word. The sense that the music is enhancing and complementing the words and conveying them. And I would say, perhaps, I hope I'm not missaying this, quite a romantic score as well. It's a big piece and has the big gestures and the big sort of time frame of a romantic piece. Yeah, well, I have to say, I think you did an amazing job of it. I felt very supported. I think it sounded really good on the piano. I'm glad it did. Celtic Rhapsody for Soprano and Symphony Orchestra was written by my dad for me to sing with the Midland Youth Orchestra in 2003 conducted by Anthony Bradbury, with my sister Anna leading the orchestra. I recorded it with Anthony, Anna and the Central England Camerata in 2019, which can be heard at andrewdance.com. And I am talking with Anthony about it on podcast episode 11. The three Celtic poems are The Land Over Sea by an unknown author from ancient Irish legend, The Meeting of the Waters by Thomas More, and Celtic Twilight by William Butler Yeats. I wanted to create a piano reduction for practice purposes for singers and also allow for more performances. Here are excerpts from movements one and two performed by me and Tony at Local and Live Stourbridge in 2019.
When did you start to compose and why? If I'm honest, I started doodling when I was about five. Somewhere I've got a little manuscript book with a hymn I think I tried to write. I don't think it was terribly successful, but the interest was there. I carried on writing music right the way through the time that I was at school and eventually plucked up the courage to show them to some people and when I was at King Edwards I played one or two of my own compositions on the piano and I was very lucky that I was a member of the Stourbridge Youth Orchestra and I went on an orchestral course with them at one time and we got a bit of recreation time and I've been writing what I called, and I have to say this, what I called a piano concerto. Now the thing was I could imagine lots of nice bits of music where a piano is playing with an orchestra and it was all very sort of Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky, you know, very tuneful and very romantic in style. Anyway, I was playing through a few of these bits and pieces and the conductor of the orchestra, Ken Farmer, heard this and he said, well, what are you playing? And I told him, as you do when you're 14, you think you own the world. I've written a piano concerto, Mr. Farmer. He said, well, play it for me. So I played it through and bless him, he said, yeah, we'll play it with the Starbridge Youth Orchestra. <laughs> Now, it took a bit of a while to get the orchestration done and for things to fall into place. And obviously, as I started writing it when I was 14, I was learning a lot. So there were things that got changed. Uh, but I didn't know very much about orchestration. So once again, one of the wonderful things, John Griswold actually helped me with the orchestration and wrote out a beautiful handwritten score for me, which I've still got now. So yeah, I suppose my first big performance was this uh, movement from a piano concerto. And you played the piano yourself? I played the piano myself, yes. Were you a violinist in that? Otherwise, I was a violinist in the orchestra, you see, so that's how the opportunity came to happen. After that, I suppose I'd raised my profile a bit, so I got asked to write music for some of the school plays, which I really enjoyed. So I wrote incidental music for Sophocles' Electra and for The Crucible, by which time I was really taking my composing quite seriously and thought, yeah, this is something I'd like to study further, I'd like to go on and do. So that's how I got started with it. Did you meet my dad before you applied to Cambridge or after you decided to Cambridge? Your dad touched on my life briefly on a number of occasions. When I was looking for what to do after I'd been at what was then the Sixth Form College, the idea was put forth, you know, maybe I should be looking to go to Cambridge. And it was Malcolm, Malcolm Wilson, of course, who said, oh, I know somebody who's been to Cambridge. He's a good friend of mine, Andrew Downs. Why don't you talk to him? The details of the conversation are lost in the mist of time but as always of course he was very supportive and very enthusiastic and in his sometimes slightly flippant way he said well St John's is one of the richest colleges and I went to it and I enjoyed it so you're probably best off going there <laughs> <laughs> so that was literally the basis on which I chose to go to St John's College Cambridge because I'd be well looked after and Andrew had enjoyed himself so. I think we all have a, a bit of a struggle to know how to choose a college. <laughs> I think also, of course, I was first generation university educated in my family. I think there'd been a cousin of mine who'd gone to university just before me. So it was all a completely new thing for us. We hadn't got role models who'd been through and so that's why it was good to be able to talk to people like Andrew, at least put a bit of a human face to what was an anonymous system. I was going to say a little bit about that if I could because when I went to Cambridge I should say by the way, again, crazily the only reason I went to Cambridge rather than Oxford was because I was going to do the entrance exam rather than just going on my A-level result. 
and the Oxford entrance exam at that time involved a Latin translation and the Cambridge entrance exam at that time involved a French translation. Well, I was dreadful at French, but I was even worse at Latin. I'd given it up as soon as I possibly could. <laughs> so as a result of doing the entrance exam, I then got called for a, I think I stayed for a couple of nights in Cambridge and went for an audition there. Again, with the arrogance of youth, I actually chose one of my own pieces to play for them. And it sounded impressive. I don't think it was nearly as difficult as it sounded. And it was probably a bit of a crude piece because it was just a showpiece. But anyway, I did that. And I think that maybe caught their attention. But I do remember afterwards in the audition, they said, well, why do you want to come to Cambridge with that very sort of grim, austere face that people sometimes put on in these situations? And I said, uh, well, I'm really interested in composing. You don't do any composing for the first two years. <laughs> and that was the entire discussion of what composing I was going to be able to do. And of course, it's perfectly true. When I was there, and presumably when your dad was there, there was no free composition at all until your third year. You, you learn other people's compositional techniques, don't you? You learn to imitate other people, yes. <laughs> So free composition was only in my last year. So my first two years, I benefited from a lot of things there, but there were a lot of other things I found very difficult. I mean, I tried. I tried to get some traction as a composer early on, and I took some pieces to a chap, and I got a side of A4 absolutely ripping apart the piece that I'd sent to him. And the reason I'm saying that is because, if I'm honest, I went through a bit of a crisis. I mean, I was sorely tempted to say, this isn't for me, I'm going to leave and do something else. Oh, really? And I was talking to Malcolm, my piano teacher from the School of Music, as it was then, and I told him about this, and he said, well, that's absolutely terrible. There's nobody trying to encourage you or take an interest. And I said, well, frankly, no. And he said, well, now, look, I'll set up a meeting for you with Andrew. So I went into the School of Music and I'm sure played a very, very bad piece for him. I'm not trying to say I was any kind of wonderful composer or genius. I just wanted somebody to take an interest and give me some support. And that's exactly what your dad did. So I would definitely credit him as one of the reasons why I did go back in the second year. Oh, that's nice. Uh, so he told me that he thought that you showed great promise. Uh, he certainly was very enthusiastic towards me. The thing was, because I lacked role models and because, as I say, it was all an unfamiliar temper, I just needed somebody whose opinion I respected to say, yeah, stick with it, carry on. I mean, in a career as a teacher for 30 years, I've never, ever spoken to any student the way that I was discouraged when I first took my compositions to some of the tutors whilst I was there. Because to me, it isn't for you to say that they shouldn't be doing it or to give them a good hard slap to see whether you come back after it. It's that you should be looking to see what there is in their work and how you can help them build and grow and develop. So by going to see your dad and him saying, yeah, you really must carry on, you mustn't think about giving up on this. That was what I needed to go back with a positive frame of mind. It was a combination of things. I think it was also the unfamiliarity of it all. You know, the people I was with came from very different backgrounds from my own. But for want of a better word, I think I became strong enough that year to say, well, blow it, I'm going to see this through and I'm going to do what I came here to do. So at the end of my second year, I said that was the time when you could actually specialise and choose things. And I said, I want to specialise in playing the piano I want to specialise in composition. And so my tutor, Gerald Hendry, 
who was the professor of music with the Open University, he was my academic tutor, he said, uh, mm, right, don't really know what to do about this. Yeah. He obviously didn't see it coming. Well, the only person I can think of is somebody called Peter Trankel. But he's a bit of a strange man, without specifying what he thought was strange about it. He said, you'll have to arrange to meet up with him and see if he will be your composition tutor in your third year. So I went to meet somebody who'd been a student with him, and they pointed out that, yes, he had his eccentricities, but he was a perfectly good person to work with. So I went to see Peter Trankel, and I'm sure, again, as I say, I showed him a composition which was the best I could do at the time, and, and he didn't dismiss it. And he said, well, why do you want to be a composer? Tell me about something that really inspires you. And I knew immediately what I would say. It was the coda to the first movement of Brahms' Third Symphony. And uh, if, if you listen to it, it's just the most wonderful piling up of excitement and sequences and harmonic direction. It builds up to the huge climax at the end of the movement. And he said, well, yes, it sounds like you've got something to say. I'll take you on. And he had the same quality that I talked about with John Griswold and Malcolm Wilson. He didn't tell me what I'd done was rubbish. He simply tried to show me what else I could do with it and how I could develop it and broaden my language and my experience out from that. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, it was. He had a very eccentric way about him, but was definitely the right person to see me through. I think I only got a 2-2 degree at the end of it all, but as I recall, I think I got a 2-1 for composition, and I would credit him with that. All the best people get 2-2s. Two <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I feel so pleased that I wasn't discouraged enough to give up, and that and the wonderful teachers that I had myself all these things have come together as they do in your teaching career, don't they? You have your role models, and definitely yeah. that's exactly how I approach my work. Some musicians, not all of them, but I think some musicians just become a little bit isolated and seem to think that their way of doing something is the only way of doing something. I think also it's a sign of their limitations as a teacher. If they think they can't do anything to help you, then, well, maybe they're not very good at their job. Can you describe your style? <laughs> That's a very hard thing. <laughs> I've just written down some words, and as somebody who I've inflicted pieces on, maybe you can agree or disagree. I think these are kind of in hierarchical order. I don't know, you tell me. I think my music is melodic. Yeah. Would that be fair? I think pretty much everything I write has a sense of melodic line. I'm not somebody who writes stuff that's bitty. I would say my harmonic style is modal. In other words, it's not atonal. It uses some aspects of dissonance. And actually, of course, both of these are things that you could say I have in common with Andrew, although his influence on my music probably came at a later stage than when I was first developing these things. Modality is a way of refreshing the harmonic language and seeing harmonies in a different way, but without just abandoning any sense of purpose or direction in the harmony of the music. I would say a lot of my music is quite rhythmically complex. Possibly not so much the song cycles, except that the time signature changes quite a lot. And I'd also say that I think my music is very clearly structured and has a sense of direction. I personally don't enjoy music where it 
kind of starts and it stops and I'm not quite sure what's happened in the middle. I want to feel there's been a sense of a journey, a progression. Not a story necessarily, I'm not that much into descriptive music, but the idea that I can see how the music was changing. I might not know what direction it's going in next, but I can feel that there's a movement going somewhere else and then that leads on and things interrelate and build through. And I'd like to think that my music is approachable but rewards careful listening. In other words, I hope I'm not just an easy listening composer, but equally I hope that people are drawn into the music and would enjoy listening to it rather than being put off by what they first hear. And then hopefully by listening to it carefully, they would then see, well, actually, there's a bit more complexity. There's a bit of a few going on there that I hadn't spotted the first time when I listened to it or whatever. The first song cycle I wrote for you was The Other Side of a Mirror, the Mary Elizabeth Coleridge collection. And you'd chosen a fascinating selection of poems that I could choose from that she'd done. And some of them are quite dark and almost reminded me of Edgar Allan Poe in the sense of darkness and the shadows and mystery. But I'm going to suggest that you play the first song from that song cycle, and it's called A Moment. And it's the one where, well, as I picture it, there are two lovers standing in a landscape, and they're looking out, and they're seeing a sunset over the mountains in the distance. And the way I wanted to interpret it was that the poem is describing the unmovable, unshakable mountain, if you like, the immortality of the mountain, and relating it to what these two lovers feel about the immortality of their feelings for each other. So that's what I was trying to convey in this very thoughtful setting. I really enjoyed singing them. I found that they were very dramatic. Yes, it was very dramatic. You know, the idea of you look at yourself in the mirror, but it's not yourself. There was almost something sinister about some of them, I think. The poem by Mary Elizabeth Coleridge is as follows. The clouds had made a crimson crown above the mountains high. The stormy sun was going down in a stormy sky. Why did you let your eyes so rest on me and hold your breath between? In all the ages this can never be as if it had not been. Here is Tony Bridgewater's musical setting performed by me and Tony.
I would say that I think I would share features in common with your father, a lot of those features in common with your father, because I personally, I find a lot, well, I think all of his music has a clear melodic line that you can identify and that you can follow. Modality I mentioned. I know some of your dad's pieces can be very complicated rhythmically. He loves to set us a challenge when we're performing his pieces in that case. And I find his music also, on first meeting it, it's very approachable, but there's a lot more going on underneath it than just the relatively easily approachable surface of it. Does that chime with you? Yeah, that's a very good description. When you know it, it feels quite easy, but it's quite a journey to get to that point where it feels easy yes. you have to do a lot of work on how it all fits together and I mean time signature changes are definitely a feature of both composers <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to think that I managed to do what I think Andrew definitely does which is I'm not just changing time signatures for the sake of looking clever or it's a bit more modern if you don't have the same time signature all the way do you know what I mean I totally know yeah you sometimes yeah. feel in pieces well why did he only have three beats in that bar it would have been just as good with four Whereas if you're doing it properly, I think you shouldn't, as a listener, you almost shouldn't notice what the time signature is. It should just be a logical flow of beats, whether it's in three, four, five, or whatever it is. I think the work of the performer in this instance is basically to work that out, that actually yeah. it is perfectly logical and yes. it makes perfect sense. It's just it's this bit in between where you first look at the music and then you're trying to decipher it and then you're like, oh yeah, this actually really makes a lot of sense. I do feel that with both. Mm. I've performed, I think, four of your dad's song cycles now, haven't I? The orchestral transcription, the love songs, and then the two for piano, violin, and viola, and solo voice as well. And that was, I think, what inspired me to want to write some songs myself, both performing with you, which I enjoyed. I thought we worked together well, and I wanted to write something for you. But also, having been so involved with your dad's pieces, and especially the two that we gave the first performances of at the Wensbury Concert Club, wasn't it? I think it's Wensbury Music Club. That's the one. And so we gave the first performances there, and that stimulated me. And I think particularly in the second song cycle I wrote for you, I would say two things. I think your dad, going back to the time signatures thing, is wonderfully adept at setting words as they are spoken and as they feel. So in other yeah. words, the melodic line, it's not a recitative, I'm not trying to say that, but the rhythm that he sets the words to feels natural with the words. You don't get an awkward, non-accented syllable in a word on an accented beat and things like that. And a syllable will be drawn out in the way that you would naturally do that in speech. And I like that, and I think I tried to emulate that. And I think also, your dad has written some incredibly difficult piano parts, some of which I've attempted. But some of his songs have incredibly simple textures maybe even just sort of two lines, you know, two notes at a time. And I think the second song cycle I wrote for you particularly, yes, it does have some very full textures, but it also, I allowed myself not to feel that I got to fill everything out and fill the whole texture with lots and lots of notes. And I feel some of the songs I wrote benefited from that. Yeah, definitely. I remember him saying this to me when I was composing for my A-level that I needed to make sure that, you know, the singer had, well, that there were silences. You've got to allow the music to breathe. Yeah, yes. I am now going to play you Night from Four Songs of Bluebeard's Wife with poetry by Julie Bowden and music by Andrew Downs, composed for me to sing with Tony on the piano and Anna on the violin 
again for the Wensbury Music Club in 2017. This recording is another of my multi-track recordings with me on voice and violin and my husband David Trippett on the piano. Here is the poem. I know now how you love the soul of me, this tired old crone who is of ancient right, for in my eyes you see eternity, the starry ebon mantling of night. I cackle as I laugh, you slurp your soup, but we are deaf to hear such faults as these. We hardly stand together now, we stoop to greet new generations at our knees. This seventh door is sieved. If souls are true, they move into each other at their will, but they can be a thing quite separate too, where consciousness is bodiless and still. Here, safe inside a pine cone, well or bird, love forms, reforms a self beyond the word. And here is the setting by Andrew Downs.
there's one particular song I'm remembering of yours that's very rhythmic in the second cycle, I think. Probably it is Snowflakes. It's the title song, yes, Snowflakes. Quite short and quite humorous. Well, the one I'm thinking of, it's in 6-8, but then it goes into 8-8 eight, eight on a regular basis and it sort of skips around. Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed that one. I uh, <laughs> had to work quite hard on it, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> You're very fortunate and uh, I'm very fortunate that you also having perfect pitch. I'm not sure mine's as good as it used to be. I think it goes off a bit when you get older, but I hope I didn't bowl you too many googlies. It wasn't a worry that you would be able to hit a pitch in the middle of a complicated harmonic or texture. That was a good thing. I don't know if I've got perfect pitch, actually. My music teacher said that I had, but I think it's a memory thing. I think the violin has really helped me to... Right. I don't know. You I can always remember I... what A sounds like when you play the violin, can't you? Yeah, exactly. But I think when I'm singing something, I just know what the notes sound like with the harmony. Right. That's a very logical way of doing it. No, they were no perfect. I don't think there were any problems there. <laughs> From the second song cycle, Snowflakes, which of course is based on Emily Dickinson. And what I found fascinating about her poetry is that it's so short. It might only be like eight lines of poetry, but she's described half an hour's worth of music and feeling that you've somehow got to compress into a song. So she was fascinating, but a real challenge. But the fifth song is a little bit simpler. It's called Snowflakes. And it's not immediately apparent why it's called Snowflakes, because she's actually just, I think, describing a sense of joy in life. Basically, what I wrote about it at the time, the fifth titular song is a lively, light-hearted relief to some very serious things that are going on in the other poems. And the jig rhythm, which I play around with sometimes and stick an extra beat in just to keep us on our toes, as it were, just reflects the sheer exuberance of life and somebody just wanting to dance for joy. I imagined, when I was writing it, I kind of imagined a little girl, sort of, she's just got out of bed, shall we say, you know, she's got her PJs on, and she goes to the window, and it's snowing outside, and she gets excited, and she's running around barefoot, and it talks about how she marshals all her toes for a jig. And I just imagine this little girl excitedly running around. The poem by Emily Dickinson is as follows. I counted till they danced, so their slippers leapt the town, and then I took a pencil to note the rebels down, and then they grew so jolly I did resign the prig, and ten of my once stately toes are marshalled for a jig. Here is Tony Bridgewater's musical setting, performed by me and Tony. Thank you. 
enjoy getting into the composer's brain and why did he write that and what's that got to do with the poetry so i end up going through a similar process to what the yes composer already been through yes i can imagine that and certainly when i'm writing i would imagine your dad would be much the same when i'm writing settings of words you read the poetry and almost immediately a harmonic landscape and a melodic shape comes to mind you know setting words is one of the easiest ways of starting off i have even on occasion thought of words that I wanted to express in an abstract piece, in other words, with no singing in it, because the melodic impulse from words is so strong. And once you've had that sort of eureka moment, which I find comes very quickly with poetry, it's sometimes hard to imagine how you could interpret it in any other way. But I was listening to the songs this morning, and I thought, well, you know, somebody else might have had a completely different view on what the poet was trying to say and the mood that they were trying to convey in that song. So it's interesting. I don't know if anybody's ever set the poems that I set apart from me. It would be interesting to see what the differences mm. were between what they thought it should be and what I think it should be. But to me, once I've got it, that's the only way I can do it. And I would guess your dad's probably the same way. With both of you, it feels very logical what you've done. Well, that's the thing. I think there might be alternative interpretations which might also feel logical. You could see the reasoning behind a composer approaching the words in several different ways. But as long as what we have chosen to do is logical within our language and what we're writing, then that's good to hear. It's fascinating. It's like a whole other dimension, isn't it? To yeah. Just looking into people's minds. <laughs> yes. Tell us about your teaching career. Why did you decide to become a teacher? I possibly didn't go into it for all the right reasons. When I was at Cambridge and I'd had this really satisfying third year, and the question was what to do afterwards. And maybe that was an opportunity perhaps to go and do further study somewhere else. But at the time, for whatever reason, I felt I wanted to get a job and do something. I then, of course, was very aware of the hugely positive influence the many good teachers I'd had 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 on me. And I had really enjoyed my time at school through music. And so, although my parents, I think, would probably have liked me to have studied medicine, I did do science A-levels before I did music, but I didn't do that well in them. So I hadn't got that as an option. So a little bit, I kind of fell into the idea of teaching. And as I said to you before, I was attracted to the idea of a Kapellmeister, that you are a musician who has a wide range of skills and you use them to the benefit of your public, your employer, to the the students at the school and you are a role model as a musician which encourages the students to want to be musicians themselves as well and as I say that wasn't always the fashionable way of doing it but I felt that that was the right thing for me to do and I think I had huge good fortune in working because I only really worked in two schools I worked in Ridgewood for 18 years and Old Swinford for 12 years and I did a couple of years at another school as well but those long periods that I spent at those two schools were simply because I had a fantastic group of students huge numbers of musicians all enthusiastic all wanted to be involved some of them performing to amazing standards somebody I work with now in the National Flute Orchestra joined the school in year seven as a grade eight flautist you know we were just so fortunate so I had a wonderful pool of talent which meant 
I was using my musical abilities in a very satisfying way. It wasn't like, you know, I'm just doing the school band or anything. We were talking about a symphony orchestra, a chamber orchestra. We were talking about two different kinds of choirs for different kinds of music. And I also, of course, had huge support from the head teachers of those schools as well. When I was at Ridgewoods, Ian Maddock, the head teacher there, we travelled abroad most years and he set up an exchange programme to America. So we went to America four times with the school. And I was so lucky. He said, you've got more than enough to do doing the music. I'll organise the trip. So the head teacher of the school actually did all the admin. And if I'm honest, probably disciplined the kids for most of the trip as well. So huge amount of support there. Exactly the same as Old Swinford. Incredible musicians came through our hands. I mean, one of them was so good. She did an audition for a music place at the school. And I actually said to her, look, we'd love to have you. You would be fantastic. But you really should be considering going to Cheatham's or somewhere like that. And I was quite chuffed because she did get a place at Cheatham's. So although we lost out on having her, I correctly identified that. But there were just so many fine musicians to work with. So although... I almost fallen into teaching by accident because I wasn't quite sure what else I would do with music. As it turned out, it was something I really, really enjoyed and I think I was reasonably good at it as well. And I also had the opportunity because I did a little bit of advisory work, so I managed to have a very small input into the development of the music curriculum, especially around assessment and so on. And I also did teacher training, so I'm delighted at the number of people I trained who then went on and became head of music and carried on the good work afterwards. That's amazing and do you feel that your teaching, I mean all these different things must have influenced your composition? Well the students were so good I felt that I could give them a real challenge in the music that I wrote for them. So I wrote uh, several large overtures for concert band, one of them got performed at the St Louis marching band competition uh, which I was quite chuffed about. And in fact, I've just written a third overture for wind band for a group that's organised by one of my former students, a lovely young lady called Karen Garbutt, a flautist. And she said, well, I'd like to write something for the Huddersfield wind band that she plays with. So yeah, I did that. And then at... Old Swinford, I'd actually only conducted instrumental groups at Ridgewood. I'd had other people who were interested in choral music, but it was very much the director of music's job to conduct the three major services of the year at Old Swinford. And so I decided that I would try to write an anthem for a service each year. And that's what I did. And I was able, as I say, to write some quite challenging vocal music for the students and had a real kick out of hearing them perform them and perform them so well. So how did you do an Anna meet in the first place? Ah, well, of course, in a sense, indirectly, we had met because I already knew your family through your father. But it was a wonderful bit of serendipity, the word. I'd just been appointed to my second teaching job as director of music at Old Swinford hospital school and we were very lucky in that we had quite an amazing team of musicians working there and a pianist called Matthew Davis and a cellist whose name escapes me just at the moment probably come to me later on anyway they were kind enough to say they'd like to perform a cello sonata that I'd written some years before 
for a wonderful tennis called Helen Stoll, who was actually a former member of the CBSO, or had played with the CBSO. I think you probably know her through Anna's music making. She played a solo in a piece of my dad's when I was about five. Well, there you go, then. You'll perhaps remember a little bit of what a wonderful cellist she was. I did a lot of chamber music with her. But anyway, I wrote this cello sonata for her. So my colleagues at work had said, we're giving a recital in Kidderminster. We'd like to perform your cello sonata. And so obviously I turned up to hear the performance. But also on the programme was Anna. And I enjoyed her playing, of course, read her CV, and then discovered that she was between jobs. She had been teaching at a school just up the road from me, Crestwood School. I think it was when she had Oscar, would it have been? I think so, I think she left teaching temporarily when she had her first Oscar. And I was looking to appoint a head of instrumental studies. And her CV, both from the point of view that she was so interested in performance and such a good performer, but also that she came from an educational background and had not only been a peripatetic teacher, but actually been a classroom teacher, the the planets just aligned. This seemed to me the perfect candidate for the job. And the rest, as they say, is history, because, of course, we had a real Indian summer when we were both working together at Old Swinford. I think we were very proud of what we achieved, and the number of musicians who came through our hands and then went on to study music, and indeed have careers as musicians, we were very, very fortunate, and it was a great time. Great team. <laughs> I think we worked <laughs> together very well indeed, yeah. I think we were complimentary. And you did a lot of recitals together. We've done a huge number of recitals together, yes. Of course, we only did one, as it turned out, last year, but we were lined up to do, I think, ten altogether across the year. We've performed locally, obviously. There's a lot of music going on in Starbridge, Leominster, uh, Solihull's, very good concert series there, rugby. And then, of course, I had some trepidation. I think it was you who suggested, why don't we do a recital in Cambridge? And, of course, having had this slightly bumpy experience, it was such a great feeling when I got up in Great St Mary's and did my thing and performed and performed my own composition as well and it was kind of like after all these years I've come back and done what I wanted to do when I was there the first time around. And was that the first time you'd been back? Not the first time I'd been back. I'd been back as a tourist if you like on a number of occasions but it was the first musical thing I'd come back to do. Yeah. Wow. I have to say, I really enjoyed that concert in Emmanuel Church. Oh, I think that's one of the best that we've ever... We did Snowflakes there, I think, didn't we? And it was a really good audience. It was a lovely audience. It was a big building. I love the way that the platform was set out. And uh, if you remember, it was such a huge, tall building as well. It had lovely acoustics. Yeah, it was really good. So you and Anna have performed Andrew Downs' Violin Sonata many times. What's that like to play? I think the Violin Sonata is possibly my favourite of the pieces that I've performed written by Andrew. As I described in his style before, it is deceptively simple looking on paper. Some of the textures are just like one note in each hand. But the rhythms that he uses and creates... There's lots and lots of time signature changes and things like that which keep you very alert and on your toes all the time. And then you add to that the fact that very often you have a really hard cross rhythm between your left and your right hand. So in other words, there are two complicated rhythms, but it's not that they don't fit, and that's not the word I'm trying to use, but you know, they go across each other and you almost have to split your head in half. The left hand has to be totally independent and strong of the right hand. 
And of course what he then sometimes does is puts a third cross rhythm into the violin part. And if I remember rightly, there's one section where he actually has a different time signature for the violin from the piano. So it certainly makes the piece challenging, but I'm describing that very much as a positive because number one, it's a very thrilling effect. I love polyphony and I love the idea of rhythmic polyphony as well as melodic polyphony. So you've got these three different strands all combining and crossing over each other. But of course the other thing is what we talked about before, he doesn't do it to make a point or to sound clever or to highlight that this is a 20th or 21st century piece. It feels totally natural and when you listen to the recording, if we've got it right, which thank goodness I think we did <laughs> all the time, it doesn't sound mannered, it doesn't sound forced, it just sounds completely natural. This is how the piece goes. So it's very exciting to perform from that point of view. But I love, you talked about silence and letting the music breathe. There are just so many wonderful moments in that piece where the piano is just doing something very simple or maybe very repetitive. And there's a beautiful sense of reflection, almost meditation perhaps, in the music. I think those are the things that come to mind. I think also when I've performed it, it's brought to mind that Andrew at the Conservatoire was very, very keen on developing links with world music. And I actually played the piano part in a piece of music by John Mayer, who I think your dad was friends with, a wonderful Indian musician. I would think that there are moments in that piece where your dad is thinking not just of a Western way of composing music, but almost of say an Indian rag, some of the modal scales that he uses, the use of a drone, and almost a sense of improvisation in the melodic line as well. I would now like to say a huge thank you to Tony for coming on our show. To end this podcast, I am now going to play you a recording of Anna and Tony performing the third movement of Andrew Downs' Violin Sonata. This work was specially composed for a concert dedicated to the memory of Ernest Element, given on the 3rd of May 1994 in the Adrian Bolt Hall, Birmingham, by the Kingsdown duo, Roger Huckle Violin and John Bishop Piano. The first Indian performance was given by John Mayer, accompanied by Gillian Mayer, at Kolkata School of Music, also in 